diets. They work for some, but not for others. You're just not on the right diet, purveyors of the latest trend will tell you. You're just not on the right diet for your blood type, ethnicity, age, hair color, says another set of true believers. So, what's right and what's wrong? Today on Fork You, a conversation between Dr. Terry Simpson, weight loss physician, and Dr. Bill Lagikos, nutritional biochemist and physiologist, where they expose the truth behind diets and why they may and may not work for you. Bill, there are a lot of weight loss programs out there. The one that I'm hearing the most about most often is the keto movement, which says that they're going to cure everything from heart disease and cancer. I think from a 30,000 foot view, uh, keto works for a lot of people. So does low fat. Uh, I like some of the recent work, the studies showing it's more about the level of processing of the food. So you can have a, a vegan diet or you can have a ketogenic diet, and as long as it is excluding a lot of processed foods, it tends to not be overeaten. And people that tout the magical benefit, benefit effects of any of these diets, 99% of the time it's due to uh, weight loss. We actually had an experiment with Evo, who you met. He had, did it several years, three or four years in a row for one month. Eva would go on a beer and sausage diet, rigorously kept his calories to 1,500. We measured his liver function test, his lipid panel. Every year he lost weight, kept it off, and every year his liver function was fine, surprising with the number of beers he had a day, which was mm -hmm. limited to six. But it was. He had weight loss, and he had sustained weight loss over the year with a kind of this funky diet we sort of made up. Well, that's terrific, and that's an awesome diet. <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, that basically proves the point. I mean, even if it's not a lot of weight lost, I think a weight loss is a major driver in a lot of the health improvements that people like to attribute to particular dietary trends. There doesn't seem to be a lot of long-term data in these diets. When I look at the sort of metadata I see that if you eat really high on the low-fat side, you have a little lower lifespan. If you eat really high on the high-fat side, you have a little lower lifespan. If you have your carbs at about 55%, you seem to have a little longer lifespan. Is there much good data saying one diet versus another, other than the Mediterranean, has great long-term results? I, I don't think so. I don't think it comes down to macros at all. I, I think that there's the confounding in those studies is so deep that I don't think the macronutrient composition of your diet is going to be what kills you in the end. Part of your job is helping people lose weight. What are sort of the big messages you try and get through to people? One of the biggest things is the importance of adherence, which is why I, I try to say, you know, what do I know that you can adhere to 100%? It's what you've been doing because you've been doing it. So let's try and find the lowest hanging fruit that we can change it so it doesn't turn your whole world upside down, which is something that would probably never work. So in other words, you're not going to change a keto into a vegan or a vegan into a keto? Correct. However, I don't like to put those two at odds because there, is, there have been a few studies on the vegan ketogenic diet. 
So give me an example of some of the things for our audience, some of the things that they can do to incorporate in their life now to help them lose weight and just feel a little better about themselves. Well, feeling better about yourself and health outcomes and health profile, exercise can help with that a lot. Uh, I like to advocate all kinds of exercise. Cardio is good for the heart. Weights is good for a quality of life and muscle mass, which also seems to bode well for a quality of life. In terms of diet, probably nix the ultra-processed foods. Nobody needs single-serve bags of potato chips flying around the house. Is that um, that big, that great big bag? Is that the single-serve? <laughs> no, no, but, but I know people that will go through multiple single-serves in one sitting. Like when you see the Oreo cookies, just 100 calories, that you'd probably mm -hmm. say it'd be better to have the apple? Uh, yes, yeah. And actually, even when it comes to the apple, one of, one of the studies that was comparing processed to unprocessed foods, it was very interesting. I was trying to figure out how are they going to do this, and it was like an apple versus applesauce. And that's sort of not an obvious comparison, but the people in the apple group tended to eat a little bit less. And when you start looking at, at, at some of the ultra-processed foods, are there some that you find that it has a lot of bang for the buck when you get people to sort of move away from them? Yes. Uh, the lowest hanging fruit there is obviously potato chips because, you know, it's all too common that someone will sit down for lunch, have a sandwich, you know, a diet soda, think they're doing something great, and then instead of taking a couple of potato chips and putting them on the plate, they'll just open the bag and sit down in front of it and generally overeat a lot because of that. The, the potato chips just don't seem to hit the satiety button. How about candy bars? Candy bars are, I don't know, for kids maybe, but I don't think adults should be eating candy bars. Or if nope. they do, very rarely. That, that's the wrong answer, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm okay with the sausage and beer diet. Isn't that enough? When they hear us talk about that, people will... You know, and Evo wrote a book about it. People will say, oh, I can have all I want. And it's like, it's not all you want. You know, I mean, right. Evo and was... as, as soon as you told me that he lost weight on it, I was instantly convinced that, you know, that could definitely happen. That's very feasible yeah. for your health to improve because you're losing weight. You can eat pretty much every diet. I think there was a there was a McDonald's diet where the guy overate everything and it was a TV show of E and he got very sick. And somebody else did the McDonald's diet and they underate at you know every opportunity and they lost weight and got healthier. What you're saying is increasing fiber in a diet seems to not only help you from a satiety sense, which then keeps your appetite smaller, but provides a lot of health benefits because you're going to lose weight. Yeah, I'm trying to move away from the word fiber because if that was the, the plainest form, then Metamucil would have solved the obesity epidemic decades ago. And it seems to be like whole food-based fibers seem to be the way to go, not like a, an isolated fiber powder, for example. We see some of this problem in our weight loss surgery patients. So the, we start out weight loss surgery patients on what I call formula, which mm -hmm. is our version of some protein shake, of which there are about a 1,000 out there that'll sell. But when patients come in and they haven't lost weight, they'll say, well, I'm going to just have more shakes. And it's like, that's, you know, we, we, we would rather have them have some beans or, or something yeah. rather than the shakes. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. That's a, that's a good sound advice. The other thing that you mentioned is the shakes is something that I tend to, I don't rail against this movement on the, uh, in social media as people are starting to catch on to higher protein diets, which I tend to like that. 
you know, have pro a couple, three servings of protein a day seems to do well. Uh, protein does seem to hit the satiety button quite well. And all of the hysteria about the kidney health, the leaching calcium from your bones, any of that stuff. I mean, the only thing that might be remotely true is from the Kidoki studies on the, on the people with like end-stage renal disease might have improved outcomes changing their protein intake. But even that, it's not 100%. We're pretty good at processing and breaking down protein and eliminating too much of it. We don't store it. So it tends to be when we can store my macronutrients that we have problems. Yeah, that's a good, good way to look at it. I want to talk to you a little bit about fatty liver disease. Okay. Uh, it's something that we in weight loss surgery see a lot of, and, the, and, and we're usually the first ones to diagnose this. We're never surprised when we see it. We open up people and take a look at them with our scopes, and we see these this fatty liver disease, and we take biopsies, and some of these people are fairly far advanced. Then sometimes we have to go back and look at them again, and all of these people who have lost weight, and there will be some people who have still have bad fatty liver disease, and there are other people who have not. We'd like to think that it's a some dietary thing between them, but, but clearly there's a combination of diet and genetics that are there. It's not just all weight loss. Well, there, there's thoughts? an interesting overlap. I saw it was a correlational study, and it was alcohol consumption and post-bariatric uh, surgery. And there seems to be a, sub a subpopulation that tends to drink a little bit more mm -hmm. alcohol. And alcohol is definitely an independent risk factor for fatty liver. Yeah, there is a slight increase in alcoholism. One of the things we have to screen for is alcoholism use, and then afterwards is alcoholism. Because... With some of the weight loss surgeries, when you drink, especially the ones that are like the Ruin White Gastric Bypass or the one in Astomostic Gastric Bypass, the alcohol hits the small bowel much faster, people feel better much faster, and then, as all of us know, once you feel better with the alcohol, you want to keep it going. The difference is, is that if you have a full stomach, you're not going to feel that right away and you can absorb more and you're not going to drink as much. These patients, we think we give them a much faster avenue to that high. That's interesting. That's unfortunate. And, and I'm glad to see that, you know, it's on your radar and you're doing the screening, but that's also going to put them at much greater risk of that fatty liver. Uh, I once heard a doctor who, similar to your case, I think I was a student when I asked this, I said, well, what's the difference? Why do they call it non-alcoholic fatty liver disease versus alcoholic fatty liver disease? What's the difference? And he told me patient history. What do you think about uh, Lustig's comment about the highly unprocessed fructose causing in some people a high degree of uh, fatty liver disease? I don't know. It has to be consumed disproportionately very high. It is rarely found like that in nature. Like, you know, I guess Lustig said, it's just the high fructose corn syrup. If it's in a big energy excess, possibly contributing to fatty liver, by restricting fructose, you're probably also restricting glucose and hopefully, and if you're creating an energy deficit in that context, that could help clear the fatty liver. I think uh, the, his stance on the whole, whole food-based fruits and stuff, that, that's a good take, a good avenue. Even on the low-carbohydrate approach, I, I don't think that people should be abandoning you know, low-carbohydrate, low-starch fruits and vegetables. I do remember my first foyer into the Atkins diet, which was many, many years ago. You know, it's sort of like, don't eat these fruits, don't eat these vegetables. And, and I always wondered, why would you say that? 
Right, right. And I think that sometimes some of the more recent Atkins advocates took it a little bit too far and said, you know, no fruits and vegetables at all because there's no carbs in eggs and, and poultry and steak, so we'll just stick to those. I think that sort of took the movement a little bit too far because even the, the zone diet study was a, a low carbohydrate, what I would say would be a well-balanced low carbohydrate diet versus a ketogenic diet. And the people on the low carb actually did a little bit better. And do you think that was because of the satiety with the whole foods? Could be. It could be. I mean, fat is, uh, dietary fat doesn't seem to be like a super satiating nutrient. And it also seems very easy to passively overconsume. Yeah, my brother-in-law brought a whole bunch of baklava over. I can, I can attach nice. to that. <laughs> Delicious. I remember the, you know, when I, I think I was a college student when Atkins came out and I thought I had to lose five pounds because in those days that seemed to be the thing I had to do. Oh, to have those days back again. But I remember sh I was shocked when I went to Italy my very first time and here are all these beautiful people eating pasta and not getting fat. And it's like, mm -hmm. this can't be. <laughs> How can this be? Yeah, I think the food environment has a lot to do with it. Like, you know, the, the memes, you see these on the internet, you know, when you go to the grocery store, you're bombarded with all these colorful, flashy ads to get all this junk food uh, as much as possible. And the food companies are trying to sell their products. So, of course, you're going to be advertising and have focus groups and whatnot. I, th I do think that the food environment has something to do with it. Well, I also think that when you look at what they're actually eating, with their pasta, they have a lot more vegetables and a lot less fat in it. And their fat is predominantly olive oil. Whereas with our pasta in the United States, I mean, when you look at spaghetti and meatballs in the United States, there's an awful lot of meatballs where they might have one in a dish, we'll have half mm -hmm. a dozen. And that's also going to contribute to the calorie imbalance. It's coming down to calories in some sense. Is that what the, the calorie man is saying? <laughs> it's hard to get around that. I mean, people get that, people get there in different ways. Like some people will feel a lot of satiety on like a whole food plant-based diet and that'll, you know, drive their calories down. Some people will get that way with the ketogenic diet and that gives them an incredible amount of satiety. Uh, so it drives the, the calorie intake down. You know, it's kind of like how you get to that end point is the purpose. I, I have seen some debates that showed you know, there might be some differences in sort of metabolic efficiency, calorie absorption efficiency, but I tend to think that might account for a couple hundred calories tops. And it seems that might not have a huge influence if somebody's overeating 500 calories, but then maybe 200 calories aren't absorbed as well or they have a greater thermic effect of feeding, I guess it could put a dent in it. Do you know how gastric bypass cures, is, cures diabetes so quickly? Well, I don't know that it's the gastric bypass that does it. I think that because every weight loss surgery does it, whether it's the lap band that we hardly do any anymore, or the gastric sleeve, which is the most common, or the bypass, or the one anastomosis bypass, or duodenal switch, what they all have in common is you're eating so little. You're in such a huge calorie deficit for the first couple of months that you're going to burn oh, through your glycogen. One. Yeah. And so you're burning through your glycogen very quickly, and then you're starting to use up your fat stores. So I think that's kind of the magic. So, you know, for a while we thought there was something we bypassed in the first part of the intestine that did it, and it seemed to work out in mice, but it's never worked out in humans. In mice. So. I, met, I met a girl who was a wizard surgeon, 
And she was taking one part of the intestine, putting it in a different part of the intestine, taking, you know, an inch of mouse intestine, reversing it. And she, she provided a compelling case that in the mouse, it could be when the nutrients are hitting, which part of the intestine was having some of the effect. But, in, but it never works out in people. Yeah. Right. In, pe in people, it just seems it's such an easier, what do they say, Occam's razor. You know, you're in an instant energy deficit, something that you, you know, probably hasn't been in, in years, maybe decades. And now you're finally seeing fat clearing out of uh, ectopic sites like the liver, muscle, yeah, and they just seem to, and they just seem to get better. And so, we if you're in the Roux and Y gastric bypass camp, you will repeat the mantra that the Roux and Y gastric bypass is a cure for diabetes. But if you're in a camp of we will do whatever weight loss surgery, well, they're all in our toolbox. You see every single weight loss surgery when you have weight loss cures diabetes. There obviously there are those patients who you can do a gastric bypass on. And after a few months, they regain their, they regain their weight. That's not a majority, but those people don't tend to cure their diabetes. So I do think the magic is the body weight. That I think is a great cure for insulin resistance. I sort of look at it like your fat cell is a sponge which will soak up insulin. The smaller you make your fat cells, the less surface area there is. Your insulin will work better. Sure, sure. Uh, and insulin is very good at making fat cells grow. It does it at a much lower concentration in the blood than, for example, it causes glucose uptake in muscle. Which is, I think, one of the things that has driven a lot of the low-carb diets lately. Yeah, yeah, but th then do we have these recent studies from uh, Kevin Hall down at the NIH that are showing basically equivocal weight loss on high-carb, low-fat diets versus low-carb, uh, higher-fat diets. And so that sort of had made me back off a little bit. I used to be uh, more hardcore advocating the low-carbohydrate approach because there were a good deal of studies uh, showing a little advantage of low-carbohydrate. And then I think it was Chris Gardner did a couple studies, or there were a few studies before his. Some but not all studies showed that you know, insulin-sensitive people do a little bit better with a lower-fat diet, whereas insulin-resistant people do a little bit better with a, a lower-carbohydrate diet. That it panned out in some but not all studies. I know I like the idea, you know, more more custom tailoring the diet, but it's also going to come down to, of course, adherence, and you don't want to turn someone's whole life upside down by making them follow a crazy. Who diet. was that fellow in the forties and the fifties out of Duke who had the rice and Kempner? Uh, Kempner, yeah, Kempner. I, I've read a couple of those studies, and the thing is, I, it, it's conceivable that. If these patients lost weight, they could have got better on a very high carbohydrate diet. However, none of those studies were very well conducted. They, you know, they weren't, there were no control groups. It wasn't like a crossover trial. It was basically just the person goes on the diet, and if they are better than they were before, then it was due to diet. Well, and he always published his good results, didn't he? Yeah. And I guess I think the other, the other part of the thing that always got, that sort of got me off of thinking of low carb as the only way to go was when I would go to Asia and you would see the monks. Mm -hmm. And and I would see these skinny little monks shoveling in rice and thinking, mm -hmm. oh my God, we can't do that. And then when when you would go to China, and and rice is still a predominant port, especially in southern China, when you see them getting fatter, they're putting more meat in their rice bowl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I sort of think we're increasing insulin from that, but now we increase fat from increased meat. So 
you're kind of opening the door for more fat absorption and 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 deposition. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, the classic sumo wrestler diet where they, during training, they they wake up in the morning, have no breakfast, do their exercise, and then have beer, rice, and high carb, high fat dinner with a lot of alcohol. There's parts of that that sound like a lovely thing, <laughs> uh, but I I just don't want to wear that outfit. Oh yeah, good point. I think the the other thing that has always gotten me in years of seeing patients is their thought that I'm doing bad because I had a slice of bread. And it's like, was it whole wheat? Well, okay, it was whole wheat bread. And you're worried because you ate a steak and you had a slice of bread. It's like, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's yeah. not the slice of bread that did it. Right, right. Carbs have been very demonized. They have, and I don't even know what it means when people say I'm on a high-protein or high-carb diet anymore. It's sort of like, well, what foods are you eating? I think that's a much better question to ask because, as we've discussed, it doesn't seem to come down to the macronutrient composition, per like if you're comparing fat to carbohydrate. Whenever I, I always like to go into these conversations assuming the protein content is roughly similar because it's not really a, the protein war. It's usually the fat-carb war. So my patients are patients who have spent their life, they're professional dieters. They've been on almost every diet that you can imagine, some that I couldn't imagine have been out there. I've learned many different diets in the world from my patients. But it's an endless cycle that leads to more weight gain. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it's almost as if diets cause more weight gain sometimes. Well, I wonder in, in that case if the period of time that you lost weight does that have any legacy effect on future uh, metabolic risk profile? Like, for example, if you lost 20 pounds, kept it off for a year or two, then gained it back, are you better off than never having lost it in the first place? We, we talk about it. We demonize it as the yo-yo diet. And I think it's very defeating to patients psychologically when they do that. But I do like the simplicity of whole foods are much better for you and if we can get people over to that as opposed to highly processed, calorie-dense, nutrient-poor foods, I think they do better overall. Yeah, I would say there's, you know, there's a lot of good data supporting that. That's, that's very sound advice in my opinion. But we see patients that want to fast instead, and I think the body is uniquely set up for us to fast. How are you defining that? I'm not talking about the the fasting diets. I'm talking about people who go on ultra low calorie diets for a while, which mm. really aren't sustainable for the vast majority of people. And I think that that's sort of kind of widely known. There was the protein sparing modified fast, which was known as like the wedding crash diet. You know, you would do it before a school reunion or something. You're definitely going to lose the weight. But I think about three or four studies where they did that and they showed it was a near 100% remission. By, rem by remission, I meant weight regain. And usually it, it's not only weight regain, it's weight regain with more. Mm -hmm. I, I sort of like thinking of it in a evolutionary way. Our bodies were primed for our ancestors 10,000 years ago. And I know this is teleologic nonsense probably, but, but most of our ancestors survived because they were very good at storing things. Yeah, yeah, that's, that seems to be a, a logical thing. I don't know how true it is, but... It seems to make sense, but I'm, you know, I also read about these hunter-gatherer tribes where they go where the berries are because that's where the animals are, and if they don't catch an animal, they've just been eating berries all day long. You know, we've come up with some common things here. Number one, ultra-processed, 
especially the fats and, and the sugars, just are things that if people can avoid, it will help them. What's your advice if they say, all right, I just want to have this on an occasion. I just want to have my piece of cake on whenever. Well, I would say that's fine if it's on occasion. If it's something like there's, there's often these early experiments on controlled eaters. And I learned about this in a textbook. I, I don't know the, the actual citation offhand. But it was something like they would bring them in, give them a plate of cookies, and say, okay, you know, we want to know about the flavor, the texture, all these questionnaires about the cookies. And, they, and there was something about, about 20% of the people would have a cookie, do some of the questions, and then clear the rest of the plate and you know, do some more of the questions. And the researchers deemed that a controlled eater, whereas the other 80% would just have the cookie, fill out the questionnaire, and hand it all in. And they were th thinking the, the mindset was, well, I've already blown my diet by having a cookie. I might as well have the rest of the plate. Ah. So if, if you're one of those people, you should probably not have a cookie. Then there's the other side of it where you should give in to a little bit of it because if you don't and you end up binging it, that's not a good thing. If it's a guilty pleasure, it shouldn't be. I mean, if that works for you, then great. I have no problem with that. I mean, I think there was... I saw a news program a couple of years ago where somebody said they were having an ice cream cone every day and they were losing weight. And they said that ice cream cone, like, let them have something to look forward to. And then therefore that would give them, you know, their fix for the day of the dessert food. And then they wouldn't eat anything else unhealthy. It's not something that I would recommend as like our first intervention, but if it helps with the weight loss. Any final words of wisdom for uh, those out there who are finding that it's time they need to start making some real changes in their life, and how can they get a hold of you if they want to learn more about this? I try to minimize the indulging as much as possible, but uh, if you do, treat it like any other thing. You know, go back to your regular diet the following day. I'm I'm not a big person that advocates like repentance. Like if you have if you overeat at dinner tonight, you have to fast tomorrow. I think that's silly. That's just going to set you up for not a good place psychologically. I just say to go back to the way things were going and things will come back to your usual progression point. And yeah, I'm available all over social media. I try to interact with as much people as possible. So you can find me at Calories Proper on Twitter and Facebook. And you'll usually find me on Twitter and Facebook giving you a hard time. Yes, I enjoy it. I enjoy the trolling as well. <laughs> well, I don't, I'd like to think I'm not a troll. It's just having, having fun with yeah. the... Yeah, with the dad. Thanks again for listening to Fork You, the podcast normally hosted by Dr. Terry Simpson, but today emceed by me, Evo Terra, producer of the program. Terry will be back soon with another episode of Fork You. Until that time, eat well. <laughs>